For those of you who don't know me, my heart is pounding, my hands are clammy, because I don't do this often enough, let's put it that way. <laughs> so I said to the woman yesterday that in my past I've always said no, 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 aggressively. And uh, for the last three years, actually since 2019, been at Lifehouse, I've said yes, <clears throat> so, but doesn't, oh Lord, it doesn't make it easier for me. But um, this is by way of introduction, so don't worry, Alexander will be sharing the main message. But um, over many years, I've had a re two recurring dreams. The one dream is that I'm on a journey, I'm going somewhere, but I can't pack my suitcase. I can't close it. I can't find my cell phone. And when I do find it, in angst, in, in, I'm so anxious. And then I can't even remember the number, let alone, you know, and interestingly in my dream, it is a cell phone. And I can't put the number in. So when I awake, it's a feeling of destitution, abandonment, and homelessness. I so want to find that destination. So that's the one dream, and the second dream, interestingly, because we've been singing so much about the waters today, I've had this dream where there are vast oceans of water, and I see it so clearly, and then a tidal wave begins forming, and from what is beautiful, it becomes so fearful, that wave, that wave is coming, and it's going to bash through windows, it's chasing, I've got to run, I've got to get out of here, it's threatening, so I'm left when I awaken with fear. Now for many years I kind of say, mm, I'm not going into dream interpretation, but it's subjective, a dream when you wake up, you know it's subjective, it's for me. And others, when you wake up, you know it's for the body, it's for the church, it's, it's for others, and it's prophetic. I think this dream, obviously, is specifically for me, but I think today it's a general feeling in light of what we've been through over the past um, 18 months. It's a feeling of exile, the feeling of homelessness, and that is predominantly due to internal and external enemies, in our minds the enemies, in our hearts the enemies, and externally too. And then exile of being uprooted, and our roots are left dangling and dry and actually painful, and that is our fear. And that's because we don't lean into God to pray, to bring our communications before Him. We need to put those roots deeply back into the rich and nourishing soil of our Lord. So that led me, um, in, in de starting to deal with this, is to read um, from Mark, Internet Connection Required. Okay, Bible will do. <laughs> Um, yeah. So it's Jesus calms the storm. Once again, how beautiful was our worship. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. 
Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, popular Jesus. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified <laughs> and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Thanks, if you can take that. So, many times, and I, when I read that recently, I thought, gosh, I'm a real disciple. <laughs> I relate. I'm doubting. I'm terrified. Jesus, don't you hear me? Jesus, where are you? just as they called out. And um, I've had to learn that the deepest storms in our lives sometimes unpack and reveal our deepest fears. And so maybe for some of us, that's homelessness. Some of that is doubt and misbelief. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? Why do I have to go through this storm? And so, as many of the songs we shared said, Oh, Jesus, let me walk upon the waters. Let me keep my eyes on you so that I can step out of that boat so I'm not running away from the waves, the tidal storm, but actually I can dive through and leave the tumultuous ocean and dive down deep into the Lord. And Alexander will go into how we actually do this. And I do believe, and I'm talking to myself, if you don't transform pain, you will transmit it to those around you, to your family. And I also believe, speaking to myself, the greatest trap in our life is not success. It's not popularity or power, but self-rejection. We are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home into the arms of Jesus is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of God. You are the beloved child of God. You are a priest in the kingdom. We shouldn't have this fear. <laughs> we should be so bold and step out onto those waters, keeping our eyes on Jesus. I am a beloved child of a loving creator. We no longer have to beg for permission from the world to exist. So Alexander, over to you. How do we do this? <laughs>
Okay, I think I'm on. Thank you so much, Jill. And Lord, please, through these people, tell Jill that she can preach and teach. I mean, you, you hear that? I was looking at my wife and saying, whoa. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for introducing it, Jill. Thank you for your openness, your honesty, your conviction. Um, if you don't transform pain deep within you by God's grace and healing, it becomes a means of transmitting that pain to other people. And it actually ends up in abusing those around you because of your unresolved stuff that you won't take responsibility for and get help. I think it's absolutely powerful. So I want to just pick up on this idea of um, Mark 4 and uh, the storm and talk about four phases or in the development of the Christian life through symbolism and these stories in Scripture. So there are four particular stories in the Gospels about the Sea of Galilee and the storm and fishing. And uh, for me, symbolically, they represent four stages in Christian growth and development towards maturity and also can be applied to the local church because, as I said the other night, is that... Um, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of, um, of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you and through you into the world around you. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells. And I tell you this morning, the Lord filled the temple with his glory. The presence of the Lord is here. And we as the temple of the Lord, as a corporate family of God, um, experience four stages of development as well in the growth of the life of the church. So for me, when I always think of individual spirituality, I think of corporate spirituality. When I think of my individual journey, I think of our corporate journey as local church in the purposes of God. And it is incremental and developmental if we respond to God, if we work with God in what God is doing in our lives, as dark and difficult as it may seem at the present moment. But God is always at work. And He works towards the accomplishment of His purposes that He planned even before creation. So God has a plan and purpose for your life. God has a plan and purpose for this church. So to start off with, I really felt um, just to read a text as the kind of word of the Lord to introduce this. And then I look at these four pictures in the Gospels of the water and the storms and what that means for us as church. Uh, but in particular for Lifehouse Church, I felt I needed to start with reading this. So hear the word of the Lord to this church on this Sunday morning at this time and season in the life of this church's growth and development. Arise and shine because your light has come. The word light is the glory of God. Because the glory of the Lord is rising upon you. 
See, darkness covers the earth. The thick darkness of pandemic disease, unemployment, economic disparity, all the darkness of COVID and its consequences and much, much more of war and conflict is covering the earth and covers the people. But the Lord rises upon you and the the glory of the Lord appears over you. Nations will come to your light. The kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. Politicians who stand for this ward come to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes. That's why they put the window there and the cross over the horizons. Lift up your eyes and look around you from the west to the south to the east to the north. All are assembling and coming. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the arm. God is placing people in this church as it pleases Him for His purposes in terms of what He is going to do in and through this community of faith in the, um, in the area around us and in Johannesburg, Gauteng, South Africa and to the nations. Your sons and your daughters come from afar. Your, your, your daughters are carried on the arms, an intergenerational church filled with young people. Then you will look and you will be radiant. In other words, the glory of the Lord that's coming upon you. When you see what God is doing in and around you, personally and corporately in this church at this time, the glory then will shine through you outwards. You will be radiant with the glory of God. And uh, you cannot, it's like sun, you cannot spend time in the sun without unconsciously even absorbing the rays of light and then your body begins to radiate that light like a lobster. And especially those of us of the paler shade of life, in apartheid whiteies, when we get sunburned, yikes, we turn red like a lobster and we radiate heat. <laughs> Exposing yourself to the glory of God's presence and what God is doing in here goes into you and shines out through you to the world around you. You radiate. You will look and you will be radiant. Your heart will throb and will swell with joy. And the wealth will be brought to you from the seas and the riches of the nations will come to you and so forth. And obviously this is prophetic of Israel, the renewed Israel in the coming of Messiah when the great light dawns in, in, from the Galilee um, where Jesus began his ministry that is all prophetic in Isaiah. But of course the followers of Jesus, the people of the Messiah, the community of faith, which is now church, these prophecies apply to us as the people of the Messiah. What happens to him as our representative and we in him experience what he experienced. 
The light has come. It's rising. It's shining. The glory is falling upon you in the midst of gross, gross darkness. Deep, deep darkness. The darkness of fear. The darkness of uncertainty. The darkness of unemployment and poverty and pain. The darkness of 10 million migrants on the march because of dictators in countries. Europe is being completely undermined in terror and fear because of the invasion of millions of migrants. The same with North America. The world is changing. The world has changed dramatically. South Africa has changed in the last 18 months and even longer than that. The darkness, deep darkness of corruption that entered South Africa through Jacob Zuma of nine years of rule of corruption where the economy was wrecked. And permission was given at every level in civil government and business to deal in and through corruption. And lie, cheat, and steal. Darkness covers the land. And Ramaphosa and the government are trying hard to address corruption. But in my opinion, the ANC is still so deeply corrupt. We are not living in a happy time right now in our country. And COVID has exasperated the situation in terms of unemployment, in terms of poverty and pain. And you know what? You can either succumb to the darkness in discouragement and fear and unbelief or you can look up for your redemption draws near you can look up and see the glory is coming arise lifehouse and shine because your time has come and the glory of the Lord is coming upon you and God's light is shining upon you he's making you um, um, a lighthouse on a hill. You know, in Hebrew theology, especially Johannine theology, the book of John, very clearly there is a progressive developmental thought that God's Zoe Ionios, God's life, eternal life, God's kind of life that is not necessarily a length of life. Eternal life is a kind, a quality of life, more than a length of life. It is a length of life without end into infinity through the eternal ages. But more than that, Zoe Ionios, the life of the coming ages, God's life, eternal life, is a quality of indestructible life. According to Hebrews, that indestructible life of the new covenant validated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Through whose, whose spirit we receive resurrection life, eternal life into our bodies. And life, the life of God that enters this world, is the light of the world. And in Hebrew theology, God's life is the light that shines to show people how to live. And the light does two things. The light confronts and drives back the darkness. Wherever there is darkness... Aish, we used to say, strike a match. But now we say, put on your iPhone, light your torch. <laughs> this old bully is a little bit relevant these days. I know how to use my torch on my phone. 
I just learned it five minutes ago. No. Um, life, life house is God's light. The extent to which God's life is incarnated and shared in this church will be the degree to which God's light shines as witness to all the world around you here in this ward. And the light of God confronts and drives back the darkness. Wherever there is darkness and you just shine the light, the darkness flees. And light is negative in that it confronts and defeats and drives back darkness. And it's positive in that it shows you the way to live life as God intended life to be lived. Life, light <laughs> is God's truth that breaks all lies. And defeats all of the hypocrisy and the fakeness and the performance and pretense of human beings. And teaches us who God is and what God intended for human beings and how God orders society. And if we dare to believe God, if we dare to trust God and see what God is doing and work with God, the life house will become the lighthouse as witness to the nations that starting first in your Jerusalem, then in your Gauteng, then in your South Africa, then in your Africa, and to the ends of the earth. And in the theology of John, the first part of John's gospel is all about life that has come in the Logos, Jesus. Then it goes from chapter 8 onwards about light. And then from chapter 13 onwards it goes about love. God's life is the light that actually is the incarnate love of God that is the power to change reality, to change the world, to change human beings. And God's love is fully and finally embodied and displayed on the cross. Jesus symbolically showed his disciples the incarnate love of God, which is the life of God as the light of God, when he stripped himself of all pretense and privilege and power and came naked on bended knee with a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet. And the attitude of Jesus is to strip himself from all privilege and power, from coming naked with no gimmicks hidden up his sleeve. Jesus was not a type of preacher. That, G, that Jill is saying, no, 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 no already, but I'm getting worked up. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, the great apostle, Alexander Fenton. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, there are no gimmicks up Jesus' sleeve. He doesn't manipulate, hype up and cajole people. He doesn't play religious games to impress people. He doesn't go by title, turf or power. I remember meeting at Transform World Conference in Jakarta, Indonesia in 2005 where we had a thousand international delegates to talk about transformation of nations and I was invited and I was put in a room with a guy from Brazil and it was so funny. I arrived there early and Jakarta is like Durban, hot and humid and it was really hot and I was in the room and fortunately it was air conditioned but we they paired us internationally to get to know each other. And there I was as a good old South African Alexander Fenter with my shorts and a t-shirt. It was I'd unpacked there. And then I heard a knock at the door. 
And I saw this short guy. Ich. This guy had a three-piece suit on. And he was a bath of sweat. And his suitcase was larger than his body. And he knocked at the door and he stuck out his hand and he said, Hello, I am the chief apostle Rodrigues Gonzalves from Recife, Brazil. And I looked at them and a naughty demon rose up in me. And I said, Hello, I am the intercontinental ballistic apostle of Africa, Australia and Asia. The high holy reverend Alexander Ferdinand Fenter. And this guy looked at me and he just started to speak in tongues. I think he was confused. The principalities and powers scratched their head and they said, we don't know what to do now. Dear friends, Jesus came naked, vulnerable, with no gimmicks up his sleeve. No religious stuff to get the show on the road. Just naked and vulnerable. Just me. I only come to love and to love and to love. That's all. And let love motivate you. Let love heal you. Let love grow you. Because then there is an integrity of exchange that is devoid of my stuff for my agenda, but is filled with God's pure agenda because I'm letting God be God by my humble, naked, vulnerable service of love. And that picture of Jesus naked on bended knee with a basin of water coming to humanity to relieve the pain and the dirt of walking in the, in the dusty streets with sewers along the sides of the paths, open sewers in the Middle East, and washing feet to cleanse you and enfold you into the kingdom. That picture was finally and fully revealed when Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus on the cross is the embodiment and the, and the incarnation of God's love for humanity. For God so loved this world that He gave. That He gave everything. He gave his one and only begotten Son. God became human in Jesus of Nazareth and absorbed into His own body all of our sinfulness, brokenness, hatred, violence, all of our fear of COVID, all of our fear of death, all of our fear of all the stuff that's happening in society, he absorbed in his own body on the cross. And he snuffed it out. Jesus defeats evil by absorbing evil into his own body and overcoming it. And then he rose again as God's vindication that what happened on the cross is true, is real, and is enacted in human reality by the power of bodily resurrection. 
and the impartation, because that night of the resurrection, the Sunday night, when Jesus appeared in the room where the disciples had locked themselves in out of fear of the Jewish authorities who were looking for the followers of Yeshua, because a rumor had already started that he is risen, but we know the followers of Jesus had stolen his body because the Roman soldiers at the tomb said that they had come and the stone was rolled away and he was no longer in the tomb. So they were looking to arrest him and they were full of fear the Sunday night from Jesus rose on the Sunday morning and Jesus suddenly appeared to them. Whether he walked through the walls, but John says the door was locked. Or whether he just materialized from spirit into bodily form and he was there, they were shocked. But when he said, look, it's me, Shalom Aleichem, it's me, Jesus, give me some food, I'll show you, I'll eat. It says he pronounced peace and then he, and then he, he said, as my Father has sent me, so am I sending you into this world. And then he breathed on them his breath, fresh from the resurrection, and said, receive Ruach HaKodesh, Receive the spirit of holiness. Receive the spirit of the Holy One. Receive my spirit of resurrection, holiness and power. The indestructible life of Zoe Ionios, the life of God, eternal life. And then go and forgive sins. Go and take the kingdom to the ends of the earth and to the nation. Go with the life of God, be the light of God and the incarnate love of God. And it's a dangerous message because the incarnate love of God always ends up taking upon we, the brokenness of those around us has a way, as you love people, you suffer their brokenness. As you love, as parents, we know, with our children. How many of your parents have had absolutely zero problems with any of your children? I know, I look, the Bradshaw kids are here. I know you guys are perfect. And, and, and as for Gary and Louise, they are angels in disguise here on earth. And you guys have, have got no problems, so you are exempt. But you know the pain of parents, the pain of parents, when children make wrong decisions and start going different ways, and suffer the consequences of decisions. And I heard yesterday, Kerry, from my beautiful wife, Jill, about your story that you shared at the women's breakfast. And I know I've met Alex, I've not met Daniel. But uh, what a journey. What a story of pain. What a story of just absorbing the brokenness and pain of your children. Love suffers the other to love. You cannot truly love if you do not suffer the other in love. Leadership can be one of the most loneliest places on earth as unbeknown to other leaders, their brokenness affects the leader. And uh, Jesus, in that last meal, on bended knee, naked with his underarmies, came to Judas Iscariot, and washed his feet. And God allowed Judas to be part of the eldership to test Jesus' spirituality. So, Lifehouse, 
You are God's lighthouse. You are God's love house. And the destiny is crucifixion. And you cannot experience resurrection unless you're dead. Hey, you must be morse do it. God only brings to life what has died. And you spoke about death to self, dying to self. So that's my teaching, and I was going to go to the four stories. And uh, let me, let me, let me um, summarize the four stories. Christian mystics throughout, especially in the monastic movement, going back to St. Anthony of the Desert in 300 AD and other hermits, as well as other Christian mystics, have basically taught a theology, a practical theology of spiritual development through stages. But from the Gospels, I just want to summarize four stages. So Jill spoke about the story in Mark 4 when they were in the boat. Jesus said, let's get in the boat, go across to the other side, and a storm arose, and they were bailing out water. These seasoned fishermen were really scared because they thought they were going to drown. And they then said, all hands on deck. But Jesus' hands were not on deck. And eventually at some point they said, where is Jesus? Doesn't he care we're going to drown? And there he is. Hey, he's having a lack of sleep. He's fast asleep in the middle of a storm. How do you sleep in a storm in a boat? That is what you call God's rest. He was resting in God. No panic. And then they said, they woke him up and said, don't you care we're about to drown? But that's one story. It's the second. The first story goes like this, and I'm going to just summarize it. Luke chapter 5 is the, story, the first story in the Gospels of Jesus and the Galilee and the water. It says he was walking along the shore, and he saw some fishing boats, and he, he, he asked to get into one of them, and he sat, and he taught the people about the kingdom. And it happened to be Simon Peter's boat. Then he said to Simon Peter, after he had sat, and in Jewish understanding, when you teach, you sit, because you sit in the seat of authority of Moses to teach Torah to, to God's people. When you teach, you sit. In the Western world, we stand and walk. If you're charismatic, you run while you teach, and you leap, and you foam at the mouth. But uh, we won't do that today. Uh, he, he sat, and, and, and he taught the people. Then he said, let's go out and catch fish. No, Rabbi, we've, we've fished all night, and we've caught nothing. But because it's remarkable. Peter was a fisherman with his own fishing business, and he says to a rabbi, because you say so, I will go out and put down the nets. Isn't that amazing faith? What businessman like Richard Atkinson would ever listen to a pastor? Well, this is not a real pastor because he's bivocational and works with captains of business in finance, and I salute you. But uh, I've been a paid pastor, paid by the church all my ministry life. What top businessman would listen to a pastor saying, this is what you need to go do now in your business, and you'll make lots of money. You'll say, da, 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 da. And, but he believed the rabbi and said, I'll do it. And they caught a massive catch of fish, so big that they had to get other boats to put the fish in so that this boat would not drown. And when Peter saw that, it says he flung himself. I always imagine he kneeled in the fish and it went up to his thighs. 
and he fell at Jesus' feet and he said, Depart from me because I'm a sinful man. Friends, the opening call of God in our lives is when God shows us our life destiny and the purpose for which we were created in the call to follow Jesus. And when you see who Jesus is, for who He really is, and what He can really do, way beyond your own resources, and you, you see before your eyes the coming of the kingdom, it creates such a deep sense of unworthiness in you, that you say, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Who am I? that you should call me and do this. And Jesus' response was simple. Don't, and I'm quoting, don't be afraid. It's one of the most common phrases in the Gospels. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be a fisher of people, not a fisher of men. Because there were women in those days. Although they're very scarce today, but there were women in those days. So fisher of people, not fisher of men. Do you hear me? Um, that's the opening story. Jesus is sitting, teaching, does a miracle, and calls Peter to fish for people by virtue of the miracle of filling boats full of fish. Blessed is the church where Jesus sits and teaches and does his work. And we see what he does. And we come with humble attitude to say, I'm not even worthy of your presence. And what the miracles that you are doing here is just so amazing. It's like, you. it makes me realize how unworthy and sinful I really am. And Jesus says, don't worry, I know that. But don't be scared. I'm calling you to participate with me in my kingdom dynamic of miracles and teaching. Right? The next story is after a couple of months, maybe six months, but Jesus ministered for three and a half years, maybe a year later, they, he taught somewhere, then they get in the boat, and he said, let's go across, and this is the story that you'll... Now, that, now it's different. Jesus is not sitting in the boat teaching and doing miracles, but Jesus is asleep in the boat while they are frantically bailing water out of the boat. And Jesus knew in going across that they would end up in a storm. But he's resting in God expecting them to have learned from him how to do the work of the kingdom by commanding the wind and the waves to be quiet while he has a good sleep. Because a transfer has already begun to happen. I call you into existence to follow me and be with me, to enter and live in my kingdom so that you do the work that I've been doing the way I've been doing it. And I've been having a good sleep. Because when they woke him, he says this, he, he says, why are you so afraid? Do not fear. The opposite of, of faith is not doubt. The opposite of, of faith is fear. Fear is the mortal enemy of faith. And faith is the mortal enemy of fear. Faith overcomes fear. And fear overcomes faith. Your choice. Your choice. Do you want to fear COVID? Do you want to fear the vaccine? Do you want to fear all the debates about what's in them? Do you want to fear dying? Do you want to fear this and fear that and all the stories? Yes, it's early days and vaccines. Yes, there are questions about side effects. Yes, there are those in the middle who don't know whether to get vaccinated or not. But the anti-vaxxers and Bill Gates 
together with Barack Obama and George Soros, and the Pope is the false prophet, and they the Antichrist, and they've put nanorobots in the vaccines, and we're getting the mark of the beast. What utter religious charismaniac nonsense. Be careful what you listen to. It is fear-mongering. It is, you know, whatever comes to me as news or information that provokes fear in me is a sure sign it's not from God. The fruit of the Spirit is faith. The fruit of the devil is fear. Faith overcomes the world. Faith overcomes fear. So Jesus says, don't fear. And then he says another thing, which Jewel read out. Do you still have no faith? In other words, the implication is quite clear. I've been modeling kingdom life and ministry to you to speak the kingdom in the authority of God and see what God does. I want you to still the storm. I expect you to take control because there's evil intent behind this storm to destroy us, confront it. And then he himself stands up because they failed in their faith. And now he... So in the first story, he's sitting, teaching, and doing miracles. The second story, he's sleeping while they are all frantically in their own human energy reacting to fear. Their five senses. Ah, COVID's going to overtake. And a world is filled. People's hearts are failing them for fear. Luke chapter 21, Jesus says. While he's sleeping, where are you, God? God, wake up. What are you doing, Lord? And the Lord says, what are you doing? And I say, I'm bailing out water. He says, why are you bailing out water? You should be standing in authority and speaking to the covert. You should be standing and speaking into the darkness. Speak light into the darkness. Speak hope into hopelessness. Speak life into death. Speak the resurrection and renewal of economic hope and opportunity of employment into people who've lost hope, even for employment. Speak courage into Sam in Deep Slope. Speak courage into Willem in Taubo and Becky Township. Speak courage into Tsepi uh, as standing to be a ward counselor. You know, in the tongue is the power of life and death. What do you say about what's going on? You watch the TV and you see some of the politicians and I'll be very honest with you, what goes through my mind that does not come out my mouth because I'm a very religious person, uh, I think, don't do it, says Jill. So I won't do it. But I will. No. <laughs> you know, we can speak death into the air and negativity into the air. We can speak all the fear and we can add to all the fear-mongering and it just betrays and belies our lack of faith in God.
God is in control of the storm, but he's sleeping on purpose to teach you to activate your faith and operate in the kingdom as he does because he's delegated to you he's given it to you he's modeled it to you he's lived with you for six months or eight months or a year side by side and he's taught you how to do it do it but he's gracious first he rebukes you why are you so afraid do you still have no faith okay watch me again again i'll do it again for you wind and waves and you know the greek is very powerful he says, quiet, and it's the Greek word that he used when he rebuked demons. Remember when demons spoke out of people's bodies? And the Greek word, the etymology, literally means be muzzled. You know when a dog wants to bite? If you put a muzzle, can't bark properly, if it's a very tight muzzle. <laughs> quiet! Because he saw an evil intent in the storm to destroy them. Quiet, the next phrase is, be still, which actually is shalom. God's order break disorder. God's peace destroys chaos. God's harmony breaks disharmony. And, they, and it all quietened down and they were, they were aghast. And they said, who is this man? And he, he commands even the wind and the waves. And Jesus is saying, who are you? You can even command the wind and the waves to be still. That's the exchange. Then the third story is months later, Jesus has a wonderful kingdom conference all day. By the late afternoon they come and they say, the people are hungry, you better send them away. And there's a big hana hana around lack of food. And we, uh, we can't do anything. And the one guy, Andrew, obeys Jesus and takes him at his word and finds the, a little lunch of a boy who bunked school that day to go to the Jesus conference. And it was five sardine sandwiches. Um, and then they bring it to Jesus and he multiplies it and he feeds. And it says 5,000 men. In those days, you, woman, you can talk to the guys when you get to heaven. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, Luke, and God. They only counted women in the crowd, at least men, because women and kids were, you know, like part of the property. Um, 5,000 men. So if you add the woman and the children who bunked school and came to the Jesus conference, he fed up to eight to 10,000 people, not just 5,000. And so when he's finished feeding the people, he says, because we're green Christians and are concerned for ecology and pollution, uh, let's pick up all the leftovers so we leave our picnic place clean. Right? Right? It's so sad to see people have a picnic and it's an utter mess. After that, left for the municipal workers who never hardly even pick it up. Christians should be the more green than all the greens. And then he said, let's pick up all the pieces. They pick up 12 baskets full. Then he says, I'm going to send the people away, get on the boat and go over to the other side of the lake. I'm going to meet you there. So he sends the people away. Then he goes up to a mountain, very specifically says to pray. Now that's probably when the sun's setting. Probably 7 o'clock at night, 6 o'clock at night, depending on what uh, season of the year it was in. And then while they're rowing, they're going across the lake. And they only get, and they give the mileages in the gospel stories. And I'm joining John. Every one of them has the story. John, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Matthew's the most definitive with the most detail. They only get three and a half miles. And they work in miles, this old NIV. 
six kilometers or five kilometers across and 11 mile wide. So they got like one third of the way across. And they were rowing against the wind because there was a storm against them. And imagine seasoned fishermen rowing from six or seven o'clock at night to four or five o'clock in the morning. They rowed all night. I'm sure, I'm sure Peter was speaking in tongues. Bluxom. If he was a good Afrikaner Christian, he a spirit-filled, he would be saying, "Doesn't if Jesus were a prophet, he would know there would have been a storm. Why does he send us across the lake? And where is he? This time, Jesus is not in the boat. Here is the graduation process. The first one is a picture of your calling and destiny of living life in the kingdom by the power of the Spirit doing the works of the kingdom. The second picture is God has now gone to sleep on you. And God is now testing you to see whether you will use what He's taught and given you and act in His name, on His behalf, as He taught you to, to live the kingdom life and do the kingdom stuff, right? The third picture, He's not even in your boat. And in fact, He intentionally sends you out alone in the boat. And then some people say, Oh, God has departed. Oh, God is not here. Where is God? You know where the Lord is? He is up the mountain, which is a prefigurement picture of ascended into the heavens at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Because the scripture says, He watched them. Jesus was up on the mountain, and he's sitting, hey, Dad, look at them. Oh, Peter, come on, guys, row harder. We've only made three and a half miles, and it's already four o'clock in the morning, and we're exhausted, just rowing for eight hours in a row. And, and Father, your son, it's interesting. They enjoyed it. Why? Because Jesus was provoking their fear. He was provoking them. How do you respond when you're really caught in the storm and what the mystics call the dark night of the senses? You know, that scene is all at night time. And the night symbolizes where all your senses are now darkened, where you can't feel God's presence. You can't see what the Lord is doing. You, and, and most of us Christians live by feelings and not by faith. We want to live by sight and power and experience and not by faith. Paul says we live by faith and not by sight. Here, Jesus is purifying faith by absence of presence. And the Christian uh, mystics teach about spiritual formation and development that you go through the dark night of the senses where God uh, blocks off all your senses so that you learn to trust in naked faith. And then there's a deeper, darker night, the dark night of the soul, where you feel and experience God's abandonment. And you know that Mother Teresa, if any of you heard about and know about Mother Teresa and eventually want to get her book, biography, that was written by her spiritual directors, two of them, called Come, Be My Light. Yeah, when I think of that, it just makes me emotional because... She was on a train going from Calcutta to somewhere else at the age of 44. And she was looking out the window and she saw the slums because she was a nun in an order. And when she saw the slums, she felt the Lord say to her, Come and be my light 
in the slums to the poorest of the poor. And so she went and dedicated the rest of her life and started the Sisters of Charity. But do you know, if you read that book, she lived with a subjective internal sense of darkness and abandonment without an emotional, sensational experience of the presence of God. And her, her, the, the spiritual directors describe her long protracted struggle of living purely by faith, devoid of subjective consolations of the Spirit. The Catholics talk about the consolations of the Spirit, which are feelings, experiences, as opposed to this naked flame of faith that is stripped of all reliance on your senses to really walk on water. Because at four o'clock in the morning, it says at the fourth watch in the morning, the fourth watch, so the Romans counted from, from six in the evening to nine the first watch, from nine to twelve the second watch, from, from twelve to three o'clock in the morning the third watch, from four to six o'clock in the morning is the fourth watch. At the fourth watch, Jesus comes down the mountain. So his posture there is prayer, interceding for us as it says in the book of Hebrews. He pray, he's praying for you in your dark night of the soul. When you can no longer pray, and you can no longer believe God, ask Jesus to pray for you, because He's at the Father's right hand, and as a faithful high priest, He represents you, and He knows what you're going through, because He suffered all that you suffer and more. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He forever lives to intercede for you. He's praying for you while watching you go through what you're going through. God will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never abandon you. Although your feelings may tell you that. And they, or your circumstances may tell you that. And even if death comes to you, do you know God's defeated death? And for the Christian, death is but entry into life to the fullness. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, probably five o'clock in the morning, maybe towards six, and he comes walking on the water. And this time, the third stage of development is that in your darkest trial of naked faith, once again, he comes to you in that which we fear most. Now, in the Hebrew mind from the Old Testament, the, the sea, the ocean, the, the depths, where the Leviathan lives is a symbol of the chaos of this age under the rule and reign of evil because of Adam and Eve's sin. And the Leviathan of the deep. So when it talks about the chaos of the storms and the turmoil of the deep, as Jill said in her dream, there's rushing mighty waters that's going to overwhelm us. In Hebrew, a symbolic mindset that is regular through the Old Testament it, it resembles the chaos of this age under the rule of darkness. Deep fear and uncertainty. Jesus comes walking on the water. And for the Jewish mind, is, it's under his feet. He is king of chaos and bringing order out of chaos. He's walking on the water towards them. And they are rowing there, battling against the wind and the storm, and they're looking into the mist and the haze and the waves and the wind. Vorl, vorl. Yes, nothing like Afrikaans to describe. Die vorl, wind, vai, soos die devil. Um, <laughs> I'm getting in touch with my roots. Um, and, and, and you know what Mark says? Mark's Gospel. 
It says Jesus made out as if he was going to walk past him. Hi guys. Bye guys. I'm on my Sunday afternoon stroll. How provocative is that? What is Jesus doing? He's provoking them. Do you react to your five senses? Do you live by your five senses or do you live by faith? Do you live by what you see, hear, feel? Or do you live by what God says? And then Peter rises and says, and, and, and then he says, the others say, he, he says the normal Hebrew greeting, Shalom Aleichem, it's me. Don't be scared, it's me. And then he says, do not fear. And of course, Peter rises to the occasion. Peter speaks before he thinks. He says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, okay, I'm sure Jesus went, Father, watch, watch this. This is going to be interesting. Peter, come. And Peter, like a good vineyard pastor, asked his elders to get the rope and tie it around his waist and to hold it just in case. And, and he put his foot over just to test if, it was, if he could walk on it. Did Peter do that? No guarantees, no securities. He left the only thing that he knew was a security, the boat that he had built and, and it was his business. And Jesus calls you out of your security. He calls you out of that which you know and cling to desperately for life as your only means of living. And he calls you out into the mystery. Into the mystery of that which you fear most. God often comes to us in and through the thing we fear most. If we have eyes to see him, we'll see him in what we fear most. The storm. Unprocessed pain. Untransformed pain is transmitted because we do not have faith to look at our pain and the mystery of the storm inside of us. And to face it and find God in it. Because God is in it. And he's coming to you through it. If you have faith of eyes to see. Eyes of faith to see. Self-correction there. And then Peter gets out and he walks on water. That is the call of spiritual growth and development. Is now to walk on water. God is saying to, to Lifehouse, your time is coming. You're going to walk on water. With all the storm raging around you, the light is rising upon you. The glory is coming upon you. God's bringing the nations to you. God's integrating and forming something here that's going to shine very bright. And it's the call to exercise faith in the kingdom and to truly trust God and walk on water. And you know, when, uh, when, he, when he took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink, Jesus is, was a very seeker-friendly pastor. At least he helped him, and he got him up and said, stand with me, you know, side by side. And then he said, ach, shame, but it's okay. No, he said, where is your faith? You, are you un, of unbelief? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, Jesus. I mean, heaven, didn't you see I walked on water at least? I've written the book, Walking on Water. Um, Jesus rebuked him for his fear. Jesus rebuked him for his lack of faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what rages around you. Listen for his word. And if he says, come, faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of Christ that comes to you. 
Peter responded to the word come. And that response of obedience to the word gave him the faith to walk on water. Don't presume on God and do what he's not asked you to do. That's not faith. That's presumption. And you will suffer the, con the consequences of it. The two extremes is presumption, where you presume on God and you act when God hasn't spoken. And the other extreme is unbelief and filled with fear, where you don't do anything fast because it's just me and God and I'm going to heaven and I'm waiting to die one day. And we take no risks. So then, friends, the last story is John chapter 21. After the resurrection, Jesus appears as a stranger on the shore while Peter has gone back to his fishing business in the Galilee. And the stranger on the shore. And this is beautiful mystical symbolism from John. Jesus now represents the other side of death. The new age, the new creation of the kingdom in, the, in resurrection life. In this mystical visions where we have glimpses of glory of life on the other side. And he's walking on the shore. And they don't know it's Jesus. And he says, friends, have you caught some fish? And they say, Ah, we fished the whole night and we got zat. We now live in Durban. Zatexi. We say in Durban, nothing. And then Jesus says, the stranger says, put your nets down on the right side of the boat and you'll catch. And you know, once again, Peter just says, yes, I will, I've heard, I listen, I obey. And they go and they put down the right nets. And what happens? A massive catch. What is Jesus doing? He is renewing and reaffirming their first call to basically say from the honeymoon experience of power in the kingdom to the testing and trial of faith where God's sleeping on you to the abandonment of the dark night of the soul where God's left you alone and is up the hill and the mountain praying for you to teach you to live by faith and coming to you in your worst fear now to saying at the end of the day it still is about fishing for people and catching multitudes. That is who you are for. That is your destiny. The nations are coming to you. And your destiny is to fish people with multiple boats. Full and overflowing. And uh, Jesus just ends up basically asking Peter to do all of this, Peter. I just want to know one thing of you. Do you love me? And you know, at the end of the day, God can work with anyone who says, you know me, you know that I've just cursed you and denied knowing you and I'm weak and I'm a sinner and I said to you, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You know me, yet you've loved me and you know that actually I do love you as faltering as it is and Jesus says, that's all I want to know. Feed my sheep. Here's my church. Fish all the people. Go to the nations. Live the kingdom life in the power of the resurrection because that is your calling and your destiny. Let's stand.